This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software-defined systems are changing the business of AVIT. Today on Software Defined Survival. I'd say 90% of what we build will never be seen by us or the client until it's until we're all on site and all of these different uh, trains are coming into the station that have been traveling on different paths for months and months. We can use the game engine to actually introduce game characters who behave like our users are going to behave. So now if you think about it, we've created a full feedback loop between the space, the sensitivity to occupants, and the generation of media, but we've done it all virtually. Well, if it's custom, 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 custom all the time, how are you going to retain some of that intellectual property and that, some of that know-how and actually build uh, a reusable modular toolkit? Greetings, my name is Patrick Murray, and today's guest founded AVNC in 1999, where he leads a team of designers, developers, and engineers that deliver software-driven installations to enhance storytelling, placemaking, connectivity, and responsiveness. And I'm really excited to hear more about what all of that means and how an AV programmer like myself can start applying some of these ideas. So welcome to the podcast, David Bianchardi. David, welcome. Hi, thanks. Is there anything about that introduction that you'd like to correct or expand upon? No, I think you pretty much uh, hit the nail on the head in terms of what our uh, practice and our approaches uh, end up bringing to the built environment. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to expanding on that. Yeah, so I think a great place to start is, um, obviously I want to talk about software, but can you just tell us a little more about storytelling, placemaking, all these, these different terms where I might just, might just call it an AV system, you're getting a little more involved and a little more descriptive in how you describe that. Can you uh, kind of put that more in perspective for me? Sure. I mean, if we think about a, an AV system or even a, a, a sort of a software layer, uh, sitting on top of an AV system, these are the what of the, uh, of the physical installation, uh, the functional behavior. Um, so really the storytelling, the placemaking, all of those descriptions of the work are really about the outcome and the why. Why were these systems put in place in the first place? Whose objectives on the stakeholder side and on the user side are we trying to meet? Um, and really more about how do these various layers of technology, soft and hard, uh, and uh, design and intention come together uh, for a designed output, a behavior in a space, a space that has behavior or elicits behavior um, and uh, creates engagement. And that could be something uh, really vague and uh, purely emotional uh, in an art piece, or it might be really didactic and informational, um, or it might be more about a, a brand just trying to evoke um, a sense of themselves in their physical spaces as they greet both uh, guests and uh, folks that are part of the team, part of the, part of the brand's community. Excellent. Um, that's a good description. I like the way you put that. So it's, it, um, it really depends on the outcome. It's, it's really the user experience or even the stakeholder experience, like if you're trying to get your brand across. across. Um, so that kind of clears things up for me. Can we dial it back and uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how you got started in, I don't want to call it AV, but this, this kind of, a, uh, this kind of a, an industry? Yeah, and really, it's it's uh, for us, uh, it's an intersectional kind of place that we live in. We're at this intersection of uh, experience design, which is a term that needs to be unpacked uh, endlessly, um, and software design and development, and systems and hardware design and, and uh, integration. So those three things coming together, um, you know, so we do have a foot in what would be typically known as the uh, AV industry. Um, my background really uh, sounds a little eclectic, but uh, it all comes together uh, in the end. I went to school for music and music composition uh, and really found myself uh, increasingly writing music for contemporary choreographers and dance companies. Led me into the theater where my uh, pieces were getting really more sound design oriented. Uh, the shows got more and more complicated. And I realized that I could write software that would help um, essentially show control these increasingly complex, uh, complex productions. 
And, uh, you know, by the late 90s, that turned out to be very useful to folks uh, building theme parks. Uh, here I was finding ways of making things talk to each other to exhibit a design behavior uh, collectively. So um, that's really, if we think about that, um, early uses of experiential and experience design, it kind of really came um, into market uh, first in those explicitly themed environments. Um, but looking for a little bit more cultural elevation uh, and to broaden, uh, you know, the areas where we could apply these uh, uh, these insights and these skills, we, we started to uh, really support museum designers. So here again, folks calling themselves storytellers, looking to use digital layers to expand their palette of how they could express or engage uh, with their audiences. Um, and nowadays, um, we really think of storytelling as something that uh, everybody in some way is doing uh, in order to uh, position themselves or explain themselves or invite others to understand uh, a brand, an institution, um, a, uh, a piece of architecture. Um, and uh, we even support artists who are, uh, you know, in their own way, um, using the same mix of, uh, of skills and techniques uh, to create their work. Very interesting. There comes again, music is uh, the gateway drug to um, some kind of AV design or a career in technology. And I think there's something to that. Like you mentioned sound design, when you're working on a piece of music, learning an instrument, I think there's a lot of similarities with that and taking a technology apart and, and figuring out how to use it in different ways. And uh, it sounds like you had an interesting career path and you brought it back to the thing that ties it together being storytelling. And um, I really like that concept. I had Ryan Howard on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he wrapped it up to that as well, saying that even, you know, you're in the most basic conference room, somebody is still telling a story. That's the intention of the whole thing. Can you dig a little more deep into that? Yeah. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, Ryan uh, is a super smart guy and I think he really understands um again, the why of these uh, types of installations or initiatives, uh, especially if we think about, um, and uh, later in the conversation, I hope we'll get to talking a little bit about how these things come about and what, what ROI are we, um, are we returning on the stakeholders' investment. And uh, some of that is an intangible ROI, and it really needs to be um, bolstered by an understanding of um, these uh, these more uh, less measurable engagements, right? Uh, and so, if I'm uh, a museum, uh, I've been maybe uh, I'm a curator, and I have a cultural um, story uh, to tell, and I'm really thinking about immersing myself in their culture, and then figuring out what teasing out all the important threads, and then finding all these ways of um, growing. Uh, these threads into sort of full-blown understandings in, in, in uh, my audience's imagination. Uh, that might be true of a brand as well uh, who decides that they really want to have um, their guests and their visitors uh, to their corporate headquarters um, gain um, a fuller sense of who they're possibly engaging with, uh, who they're going to do business with, or um, it might be a visitor who's a prospective uh, employee uh, who wants to get excited about and understand more about the company that they're um, about to team up with. So it's really an opportunity to engage with more senses uh, in a less linear, um, presentational way. Uh, it's more of a show me, don't tell me. Um, Bob Greenberg, uh, who runs RGA, uh, award-winning uh, major agency, had the opportunity when uh, recently moving their offices, consolidating from a number of buildings into uh, one grand space that overlooks uh, Hudson Yards in New York City, uh, really had an opportunity to, to, to look at how they engage with their visitors. And his insight uh, dialed down almost a triviality, but his insight was, you know, we bring these people into our spaces, we drag them down a hallway into a conference room, and we sit them in front of a PowerPoint and we start to run down this linear um, sort of luge run of uh, capabilities and uh, presentation and so on. 
And really, um, what his insight was, and I think it's, it's, uh, it's something that bears out for, uh, for many of us, is that actually uh, conversational engagement or taking a walk around the space or introducing some folks who are working on interesting things ended up resonating much more for his guests. So they actually just went uh, and took the whole thing and turned it inside out, created a, a media ribbon that flows through the entire two-story space um, and uh, is this constant sort of bubbling up of the things that are important to the agency, the things that are important to their brand clients, uh, the work that they're doing. Um, and this allows uh, leadership to meet uh, prospects or clients, um, both on the uh, marketing side and also on the HR side of attracting talent, as I said, uh, walk them through the space. And as they're walking through the space, they'll come up to a work group that might be doing something interesting. And there's some headlines or some uh, overview or some insight about what they're working on. Uh, and it sparks conversations. And so really, I think that kind of taking a walk through the story, as opposed to sitting down um, and having it uh, played back linearly, uh, is just a, a great example of uh, what we mean by storytelling in physical space. And in that case, it's an almost, uh, it's still a very presentational uh, still has a very pragmatic outcome that they're looking for. Um, but they've uh, managed to unpack it from this one mode and bring it out and infuse the whole space with it. That sounds like a, a really powerful thing to do. And I like the way you started it, right? We drag people down the hall. And instead of doing that, the moment they walk in the building, you can start telling your story and engaging those senses and really just branding yourself. and. So I would see something like that. And if there was no content on it, I would call it digital signage, right? And for a long time, digital signage was just menus and advertising. And if a company says, I want a digital signage installation, well, you'll just throw a couple screens on the wall and that's about it, right? And they'll, they'll figure out their own content. But with your approach, it sounds like there's a lot more work up front to find out what the real goals are. And then the technology is, is almost secondary. Yeah, I mean, I think secondary chronologically, for sure. At the end of the day, this is a very technical practice and, and having a real rigorous uh, technical uh, uh, underpinning to all the creativity is required. Otherwise, what we're doing is putting things out in the world that can't really survive the rigors of operational life. Right? Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's got to work. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's got to work and it's got to work uh, for, the designed, uh, for the desired end users, right? So we might have... Uh, different folks that we're engaging in when we're designing these systems who are actually the operational users. And that, I think, is um, uh, when we say experience design, we have to always uh, remind our clients that actually we're not just designing the experience for their guests and their end users and their, their visitors. We're designing the experience and the tools and the workflow uh, that their operational teams are actually going to be engaged with. For, you know, in, our, in the case of uh, most of our permanent installations, uh, three, five, ten years in the market. So um, I wanted to go back to um, part of the question um, just around the sustainability of these approaches, right? So if you're an RGA or Victoria's Secret or um, one of our commercial real estate uh, clients uh, or an architect who's trying to create a space uh, that's going to exhibit these kind of behaviors, um, you're absolutely right. Um, people see um, displays in a public space coming certainly from an AV, uh, IT, and digital signage perspective, they're going to see that as a digital signage installation. Um, one of the things that I try to distinguish is um, um, first the form factor and the way that the uh, uh, technology fits into the architecture. So, um, you know, our process, which really is to lead um, an experience design workshop with key stakeholders on the client side their architects and space designers and their storytellers and maybe it's a, an agency or maybe it's an internal storytelling communication marketing brand uh, function. Getting all those folks in the room at the same time um, is actually turns out to be revolutionary um, and it's starting to happen more and more. And so that allows us really to understand um, why are we doing this? Whose needs does it serve? Um, what are the considerations in terms of the physical space? How does the space unfold as we walk through it? 
Where are the opportunities to add digital layers? And then what are the materials that the architect's using? Um, can we take any cues off of those materials um, and forms and uh, then design the way the technology is going to fit in the space? So, you know, getting ahead of uh, the architectural process enough so that what we're doing collectively doesn't end up as, uh, as architects call it, FF&E, fixtures, furnishing, and equipment that gets tacked on to the completed building afterwards. Uh, this stuff really needs to be integrated, capital I, integrated. Um, and then on the softer side of the project, the, the storytelling that becomes uh, software that creates behaviors, it's the same thing. We've got maybe uh, a CMO or a communications uh, VP uh, who's trying to engage with their particular audience. Um, we already know from all the other channels that they communicate in that um, activating uh, multiple senses is uh, oftentimes more effective than, uh, than sort of just pigeonholing somebody down uh, one input or the other. And so uh, they also have other channels that they communicate in. Maybe they are in print or they're in broadcast or they're online. Uh, they have a big social media program. There are all kinds of ways, channels, let's call them, that these folks are already communicating in. And uh, the channel that we're working in is a new one. We're creating it as we go, as, a, as an industry, as a practice. Um, and I think that uh, really helping them understand um, that the, uh, the raw material that they're already working with um, can have a life in these unusual canvases, um, but that it's not necessarily a place where you want to just play your 30-second sec spot from your commercial campaign uh, for broadcast. Um, and we can talk a little bit about why that doesn't um, uh, necessarily translate directly. Um, but it, 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 it does go to the operational sustainability, right? If I'm going to have an appetite as a client for an architectural scale, unusual size, huge resolution requirements, installation that's going to be out in the world for, uh, you know, if it's a 24-hour day installation, 9,000 hours a year. So somebody's got to produce content uh, for a canvas that might be, you know, 70 times HD. Uh, that's got to run for 9,000 hours a year and be engaging, relevant, uh, on-brand, aesthetically. Um, and uh, mostly that means it can't be static. It can't be some looping playlist. Uh, it really has to take a different approach. And um, I'd say the underpinning of our whole approach is this idea of evergreen uh, media and what we mean by that. Yeah, sounds like a, a huge undertaking. Uh, many different stakeholders that you need to deal with to come together and come up with uh, a plan. You, you also have the structural part, the, the mechanical part, where you're early in on the process, putting your screens in, really integrating them into the building, which I'm sure is no small feat because that's it's got to be almost custom every time. And then at the end, there's the content where you're actually taking all of that storytelling and uh are you providing the content as well and uh, maybe tell me more about that idea of evergreen content yeah well let's define content right because if we think about content from a, a typical uh standpoint we think that that's uh stills and uh maybe an audio stream in case of a podcast um or a linear video um and if we say that that's what content is then um, a content system is just there to take that existing static uh, pre-produced uh, material and shove it into playlists and play it back at the right time. Um, and that's simply unsustainable, uh, especially if you want to scale to the enterprise. Creating a, a one installation that takes that approach is maybe painful for the operators, but it's, it's going to be something that they can meet uh, the challenge of you start to create thousands of these installations um, and you really need to find other ways, uh, software-defined ways of describing what you want the behavior to be. Play this, play that, play more of this, play less of that in this market during this season when these people are in the store or these executives are visiting headquarters. So rule-based scheduling. And then we have to loosen what we mean by, uh, by content. And uh, everything that we've previously described as content 
um, we actually start to think of as assets. So if content is the finished thing that you're expecting to serve, the finished meal, uh, assets are really the ingredients. And um, in our systems, what we're trying to do is we're using software that algorithmically, generatively uses those assets, those photographs or those video clips that the brand might have, combines them with data, and that could be data sets that we're visualizing in dynamic ways, or it could be data about what's going on in the ecosystem of the brand, or it could be data about how people are behaving and moving and using the physical space. And if we combine those into a procedural, generative, algorithmic, visual engine that, that we then say, well, that's taking those assets and it's creating new dynamic content. And that dynamic content uh, can be uh, most often in our projects being generated in real time. And the fact that it's real time uh, generation means that it can be responsive in real time too. So those sensor feedback loops between our guests and the, and the canvases um, can happen. So all of those sort of ways of um, describing what we mean by evergreen uh, in terms of the operational or content strategy um, or the kind of responsiveness that you can expect uh, are one way to think of it. Um, another way to think about it is evergreen from a budgetary standpoint. If, um, you know, invariably one of our stakeholders in the C-suite is going to be the CCO um, or the COO, um, somebody who's responsible for the real estate and operations plant of uh, the enterprise, and uh, they're going to need to know about how this thing physically goes into their world and how they're going to pay for it, typically in their world uh, with capital. On the other side, there's the storyteller, and uh, maybe uh, he knows that he has a certain amount of marketing um, OPEX uh, that can go against uh, a campaign, let's say, um, or an initiative, uh, and that's an annualized budget. So even figuring out how to get these projects funded sometimes is an interesting creative exercise because we might have to take, uh, you know, the COO's um, uh, capital budget and the marketer's um, OPEX budget and say, well, we have to find a different way to stitch this together. Let's go to the CFO and she can look at it from a bigger perspective and say, oh, I see. If I shift a little bit more of uh, funding in this year into the capital budget for uh, the uh, RESO team, I can think of what we're installing as more of a platform, an investment in a platform. Because if you do take the evergreen approach that we propose, then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to invest a little bit more in this platform. I'm going to build content generation tools into this platform that my end users can uh, create content on behalf of the brand with. And then I'm going to find that I'm not spending all that marketing OPEX year after year after year to feed the beast. And that's primarily, uh, you know, really the, the, the main question for us about, about evergreen content uh, approaches is how do we feed the beast and how do we design systems where we're being responsible to uh, not just the client who's going to be thrilled with us on opening day, uh, but the client who's going to turn to us uh, 18 months into the engagement and say, this is amazing. I want to scale to the enterprise. I really think it's important that last part about budgeting and that sounds uh, that was really enlightening about because I think it gets back to the storytelling, right? What's the bottom line of that storytelling? Why, why are we doing this at all? And that's how we started is what is the why? But mm -hmm. um, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that evergreen content. I really think that's an interesting thing. And you described it as a mix of assets, whatever they are, images, uh, audio, video, and then adding data into that. And then the output of that is real-time content. So I have two questions. Can you give me a really simple example of that in real life? And how the heck do you test something like that? Mm. Okay, so an example, um, I'm actually gonna give you two examples. One which is um, an evergreen system that uh, for all kinds of good design and, and budgetary reasons, um, couldn't actually um, be realized as a real-time system. And yet we had to maintain the benefits of, of Evergreen um, for the client. 
and then something uh, that's a little bit more uh, directly, uh, you know, ticks off um, all the boxes, so to speak. It being a podcast, I'm going to sort of wave my hands and describe imagistically things that uh, your guests can't see, uh, your uh, listeners can't see. But uh, um, out in the web, they can find examples of this, uh, our work for Cadillac House. Um, so interestingly enough, you know, Cadillac uh, moved their headquarters a couple years ago to New York City and specifically downtown into a very creative um, and vibrant um, part of, uh, of, of, of downtown in the Hudson uh, Street Corridor. And um, in moving, they really wanted to engage with this new audience. Uh, it's not, you know, I'm not going to paraphrase too much on, on behalf of them. They do a good enough job of storytelling. But you know, we're not your grandfather's Cadillac anymore. We're design-driven and have always been this design-driven uh, innovation uh, company that really de- creates design objects that happen to be cars and that um, can... Um, really sort of be understood that way. And so uh, they decided that they were going to create this uh, pure experience uh, space in their retail uh, uh, ground floor uh, of the office uh, building that they were uh, moving into. And uh, working with uh, Gensler and ABC, we sort of designed this physical space uh, that has a processional sort of colonnade that takes you inside. It has an almost fashion runway feeling, um, and media uh, layers are all over the place. Uh, now, we wanted to know, you know, how do we express ourselves on this unusual, I, I mentioned 76 times HD uh, was, the, was actually the resolution of this canvas. So um, in order to create uh, that kind of raster uh, at uh, high quality and um, again, 9,000 hours of, of unique programming a year, um, you start to understand very quickly that there's no way that a marketing budget is going to support um, a brand agencies producing that amount of uh, linear content at that resolution and, uh, and bit rate. So we started to introduce them to the idea of Evergreen. And what we did along the way was we discovered that they had this treasure trove of a database of um, photographic design details from everything that they've designed and produced over the decades. Uh, Really loving details of, you know, hubcap, chrome details and stitching on leather and the way the the sheet metal would bend around um, the the, the rear bumper of a car. Just these gorgeous uh, examples of their design uh, as practiced in you know, making cars. So we found that this was a, a treasure trove, as I said, of raw materials, and that if we could add metadata to those, uh, that photographic material, we could actually call it up into visual front-end systems that we created that allowed them to make these kaleidoscopes or these Mondrianish patterns or... or, or um, and so we created a series of procedural modules, generative software modules that took those raw materials and by bringing certain expressive you know, parameters, really think of it as knobs, out to this non-technical, non-design trained end user uh, at Cadillac, then they can sit there and call up certain color tonalities or certain um, uh, really just filter by, uh, by metadata to get down to a pool of content that feels like good raw material and then feed that into these generative algorithms. So um, that's a system where we really are taking what we think of as latent assets, latent assets that are kicking around the brand. Um, and that goes for the video content as well. So if Publicis was out um, in Soho shooting the, the broadcast campaign uh, the car is going through Soho, beautiful architecture, cobbled streets. Um, well, we don't want to and really can't in a reasonable way um, put that commercial in, into this architectural canvas. It wouldn't work. However, if we ask them for some B-roll, uh, well, we first ask them to start shooting in 4K. Then we ask them for some B-roll. And what we end up with is more raw material that again is in line with the brand and the way the brand is communicating today. So if I am on uh, in front of a television, which is rare, but I see a 
a Cadillac commercial and I see this beautifully shot uh, environment and uh, it makes an impression on me. Now I'm walking down uh, Hudson Street and I go by 330 Hudson and I look inside and on the columns that are moving into the space, uh, I see some of the same uh, some of the same material. It's not edited the same way, but it's clearly of the same, it's made of the same stuff. And so that all of a sudden makes a connection uh, that reinforces uh, whatever it is that Cadillac is trying to get across. So that's kind of the idea. Uh, and that space actually ended up being somewhere where we um, designed a uh, what we call just-in-time rendering. So we wanted all the benefits of being able to create content on the fly. Um, but the budget simply could, or couldn't be justified to say we need this to be real time because we actually didn't want it to be interactive in any way. So we created something that would um, take all the benefits of that algorithmic creation, but do it offline and uh, then deliver uh, media just in time that had been freshly baked um, into a more commodity digital signage environment. So kind of best of both worlds, keeping, you know, all the GPU money that would be needed for all the hardware in the basement and uh, minimizing that while giving them all the flexibility of the, of the evergreen. That sounds like a really fun project. Well, it was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So I guess once you design this project and you're ready to start acting on it, you must internally have a bunch of different uh, parameters, different ways of making sure that just, for example, the programming works. So I'm guessing you're using more modern programming practices. You're running unit tests on certain functions. And then at the end, you kind of hand over this very complicated thing. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think everything that we deliver can be understood really as an ecosystem, uh, an ecosystem of services tied together by communications or um, signals or APIs, let's call them, right? And in the aggregate, it's this ecosystem that is actually doing the work of creating, you know, creating this media and exhibiting these behaviors in space and paying attention to our uh, occupants and guests and closing the feedback loop. So, um, you know, even our software stack is uh, a little uh, eclectic, right? So we have maybe um, what our guests are mostly perceiving. Uh, is the output of what we think of as our front end, um, our you know combination of generative and um, and uh, combinatorial playback uh, systems, and those are um, specialized to be very robust and handle uh, ridiculous numbers of outputs uh, in you know hardware frame sync, um, and it's also where all of the um, you know. Uh, maybe we're using AI style transfer techniques to take uh, a series of images and uh, bring them into a certain different aesthetic. Or maybe we're using inputting commodity video and using uh, computer graphics techniques to make them look like watercolors in motion. Or we're taking a data set and generally, you know, visualizing it in uh, using a particle system. So that's where all that work happens. And then Behind that is um, um, obviously our middleware, which uh, we call conductor. If you think about it really as an air traffic control, um, real-time, non-blocking IO-based uh, messaging platform. It's also parsing all the logic. So if I have inputs from um, our sensor fusion system, which is what we use to pay attention to occupants uh, in, in uh, arbitrary scaled spaces, well, then uh, when I say, oh, well, when, I, when all the people are walking into this commercial building's lobby in the morning, I want to know how many they are and where they're going and how much they're lingering versus going straight to the elevators. Um, so that conductor is able to take that real-time input and the rules that have been baked into um, the content management system and choreograph all of these, um, all of these activities across the ecosystem. And then below that, we get into, um, you know, I guess in some ways more of the commoditized side of the stack, which is uh, we're pretty database agnostic. A client has uh, 
something for Postgres or, or, or wants to be in Mongo or as a SQL house, um, we can effectively work within any of those environments. All of our stuff sits on top. So you said testing. And I think before there can be testing of anything, there needs to be clarity on what it is that we want it to do when it's working right. And so we tend to model these things a lot. Um, everything we build, um, I'd say 90% of what we build will never be seen by us or the client until, it's, until we're all on site and all of these different uh, trains are coming into the station that have been traveling on different paths for months and months. So if we think about our responsibility to manage our client's risk in taking a chance on doing something new uh, in the built environment, which is, you know, that's just a recipe for, uh, for risk. And it's our responsibility to manage it. We do so by prototyping and mocking up. Um, and increasingly, we're using pre-visualization. So, you know, uh, but taking previs out of a here's a rendering of what this might look like all the way um, to a working testable uh, integration test of how these things all work together. I'll explain that. So we might start in um, with a a model of a space, um, just an architectural massing model. We might throw that into a game engine and put ourselves and our client into some goggles. Not everybody can read plans well, and even if they do, it doesn't dimensionalize the space necessarily. So now we can move through this raw space and we can say, okay, let's understand how this space unfolds, where the opportunities are, um, what scale feels right, what the different view, uh, viewpoints are and vantage points are in this view shed. And then let's start to slap uh, media canvases into that uh, game engine virtual twin of our of our project. So now we can start to see how media might play in the space, but it's still just you know canned texture sitting in, on a uh, um, on a surface within the model. Um, so then we can start to say, well, um, we can use the game engine to actually introduce game characters who behave like our users are going to behave, and we can track them. And then we can feed that uh, those blobs or that info into uh, the generative system and actually feed into real time uh, uh, textures uh, the the visual product. So now, if you think about it, we've created a full feedback loop between the space, um, the sensitivity to occupants, and the generation of media. But we've done it all virtually. So we think about that as a sort of like a, that model is almost a digital twin of the ecosystem that we're going to create. Um, and now that we have these facsimiles of the building and of the canvas and of, we can actually test all of the other software pieces um, in that virtualized, uh, against that virtualized digital twin. Um, and then obviously, because we're in a physical reality, eventually we're partnering up with the integrators and going to their shops and doing all the tests that need to happen um, to ensure that all of this uh, early risk management actually bears out, um, but it starts it starts there, and it does allow us to do um, testing on uh, services uh, that in that have to connect to one another in order to do the job, but that won't actually meet each other until we're on site. Wow, sounds pretty amazing. Um... It's the idea is great, but to hear somebody who actually executes on it, um, takes out the goggles, puts something in a game engine, even simulates the people who will be using the space that uh, it sounds like a lot of fun. Do you think there is um, what what kind of a scale of a project do you need to have to do that much testing and front end work? Oh, look, the, the amount of testing, I think the process scales up and down. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look. Design, everybody's talking about design thinking, right? So it's, uh, you know, um, if we think about design thinking, well, it can be applied to uh, um, creating a, a city or it can be designed for creating or used to create a room or, you know, it's really, um, it's really more of an approach. And so uh, a project that has the intersection um, and the risk-taking meaning innovation desire, right? Mm. Uh, sort of if, if, if the client and the project team have an innovation desire and they're intersecting uh, these kind of uh, storytelling and pure creative with 
software with with systems, um, then these same techniques apply. You may need to do less of it. Um, we're not just doing it for fun. We're doing it because we actually want to be, it ends up being a ton of fun, but we're not doing it for fun. We're doing it because it, um, helps us be responsible. You know, our clients in, 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 in commercial projects. And I think a lot of your listeners will resonate with this. I mean, they're putting, uh, six, seven, eight figures of capital at risk. Sure. Um, and so, uh, if we're going to, survive and thrive uh in in business it's going to be because we took responsibility for that risk and so this is really just a a way to manage that that risk and to explore um when you don't have something to play with or test against um being creative and uh using iterative design techniques is really tough you just have to kind of guess and hope that you did that that you did a good job and that's not going to fly yeah. So this can work even on a on a on a smaller project. It can work on a project that doesn't even have um, quite as much um, uh, I don't know pizzazz. This is really just another way to do uh, to interpret a software to find uh, reality. Uh, are you working on anything interesting that you'd like to share with us now or in the future? Yes. Uh, to the first part. Now let me think about what I can share. Um, I think I think uh, you know what I'll what I'll say is this: um, there are opportunities that we've found, um, and, and I think uh, you know a lot of your uh, audience are uh, software developers, uh, maybe show control or or supervisory automation system programmers, or working within uh, an increasingly software devi- defined uh, uh, environment, and um, one of the things that's exciting to me right now, and yes, we have some incredible, um, uh, client work that's, uh, about to, uh, launch and, uh, uh, I invite folks to come check out our website. But I think what, one of the things I'd love to touch on is, um, if this is so creative, um, does it mean that you're being inefficient in terms of how you're building your own tools? Because one school of thought is, well, if it's custom, 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 custom all the time, first of all, it's going to be very expensive. Second of all, it's going to be very inefficient. The folks who are actually doing the work, whether it's an individual coder or a team uh, or a larger company, um, how are you going to retain some of that intellectual property and that, some of that know-how and actually build uh, a reusable modular toolkit that allows you to, yes, do something genuinely creative and new and responsive to the needs of any particular client, but that doesn't require you and your team to start from scratch um, at every step. So I think that's, um, that's something that we've been exploring and that I'm super excited about. So it's a little under the hood, but it's really about this sort of platformization of uh, a lot of the work that we've been doing. One example there is uh, a, a platform that we're calling Sensor Fusion. And, um, you know, if you go and take a look at our work, you'll see that we're instrumenting these spaces, uh, typically with a combination of LIDAR or thermal imaging cameras or connects, uh, well, not connects anymore, but Orbex, um, and, um, and then getting into Bluetooth low energy positioning systems or beacons, we're just trying to be sensitive to how people are using the space. It might be a public environment. It might be retail. It might be a showroom. Um, we're just trying to be sensitive to how people are using the space so that then the media can flow um, responsibly. So uh, we realized that we were using all kinds of different sensors. We would have a large space where we needed uh, very low resolution understanding of the behavior. We might throw a LIDAR puck up in the air and cover, you know, 10,000 square feet. Uh, but then in certain areas, we're really looking for a little bit more granular detail. And are these people facing the screens? Or are they looking away? Are they using their arms to try to interact with us? Or um, And then down at the finer grain, you know, things like leap uh, motion and sensors like that um, allow us to understand what fingers are doing. Um, if we put a Bluetooth low energy transponder in the space, now we can actually track individuals' phones or, uh, or RFID fobs, effectively passive tags, um, that we're handing out. 
to the centimeter within the space. So all of those different scales, let's call them, of, uh, of um, sensitivity, um, we've tried to synthesize into one model. So we now have this, uh, um, um, this platform, Sensor Fusion, that's evolved over you know, two or three years uh, just because as a company we said, oh, you know, we keep doing this. Yeah. Let's figure out a way to really do it well and to create a tool that allows us to keep coming back to that well. And every project, uh, we recently did a project, which is when we added the Bluetooth low energy layer because we said, oh, this is all great, but I need a unique identifier. So let's add this layer. And all of these different layers from FLIR to, you know, LIDAR to, you know, various acronyms all come into this one um, coherent world model. It's kind of a digital twin. Again, I'm, I'm very fond of that term these days. Uh, digital twin of the way that, our, that the people in these spaces are behaving. And it really acts as a service. So earlier when we talked about uh, the complexity of the systems and how you test and how you sort of uh, deploy, um, Sensor Fusion is a service. And if I'm um, uh, a piece of front-end software that's looking to know about, generally speaking, are most people moving into the space or moving out of the space? Well, then I'll ask Conductor. I'll say, hey, Conductor, can you tell me what Sensor Fusion has to say about this scale of behavior? But if I'm an interactive that's over in the corner and I need to know how that individual who's standing two meters away facing me is gesticulating with their arms, I'm going to ask Conductor to pass me Sensor Fusion's uh, skeletal, skeletal tracking model for that user in that part of the space. So it really does kind of create an abstraction layer for us across all these different pieces of uh, of sensing and that you know a little under the hood but from uh from a technical and uh intellectual property uh development standpoint i i think that might be interesting to some of your audience and uh from the sounds of it perhaps those tools will be available to other companies someday it's interesting i mean so far we're kind of making dog food for ourselves right. um and uh just making sure it's tasty and and uh and nutritious but um Absolutely, right? You start to think about, um, well, first of all, it means that we can start to engage with clients in something other than a, a, a um, you know, ownership model or everything starts from scratch and is really expensive. We can license that into our, our client work. Um, we've done similar development actually on our own, uh, what we call RMS, which is this uh, r remote uh, monitoring system that allows all our systems to phone home and tell our uh, managed services folks how that how things are going, and um, and these are all things that are distinct units of functionality, and you could absolutely see making those available to uh, uh, to collab to collaborators or to the market in general as a solution that people can use. Just haven't thought that far into the go to market for them though. Yeah, it, it certainly sounds interesting. Um, I hate to, to, to use um, a term like this, but it sounds a lot like what IoT promises or one of the things that IoT, like a good application of it in a real space. Yeah, well, IoT is, IoT is another one of these tricky words, right? If you're going to think that, you know, yes, so I think, uh, you know, I, I kind of turn it on its head and say, well, what are these things of the internet, you know? Um, and, and what do they, and how do they behave individually? Um, the idea of decentralizing uh, the functionality and just sprinkling um, a layer of technology into space and then organizing it in a software-defined way so that it can be used for a particular purpose um, is absolutely in line with this thinking. Um, and in fact, uh, if you think about, you know, the way building management systems are also a version of IoT. We've got all these sensors and thermostats and occupancy and this and that and the other. And we're trying to understand the behavior of this building so that we can tune its mechanical, its electrical, its whatever it is. Well, those systems are oftentimes a service that we'll actually plug into. So if we can work with, you know, um, let's say we've got a you know, an amazing engineering firm on the project, let's say it's Arup, and they're working on an interesting building management system. And we say, hey, folks, is, the, is there a way that we can pay attention to your occupancy sensors? Because if we could bring that into our world, we can integrate them into our understanding of how people are, work, are moving through the space. So those, those kind of 
I guess IoT bothers IoT borrows from internet in that everything is designed to be interconnected, and that it's the aggregate behavior of interconnected things that gives us the desired functionality. Um, so totally in line. Uh, you're absolutely spot on. Yeah, Net- networks of things have been around for a long, long time. It's it's actually nothing new. Nope. It sounds like we're going to have to follow up in a year or so and then see what uh, happens with sensor fusion and conductor and uh, how that all works out and evolves. And um, if anybody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Well, uh, absolutely uh, more than happy to uh, connect with folks. And I'm on uh, the various platforms. You can find me on LinkedIn uh, and I'm uh, really responsive. And uh, uh, shoot me an email. I'm david at av-controls.com. Excellent. David, thank you for being on the podcast. Patrick, really appreciate it. Great chatting. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of Ideabox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at learnavprogramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the LearnAVProgramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, When it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or or things like that. For some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses. It was the mindset of, oh, wait a second, I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn uh, you know, the other 1%. And that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset, uh, which is more important and, and, and really show them new opportunities, open the door so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the the biggest changes for me was as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again. Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business... He needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com, and wherever you see a sign-up button, go ahead and sign up, and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful, and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions... Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.